Welcome to Summation, a voyage through 35 years of great science fiction short stories as collected in Gardner Dozois' reprint anthology series, The Year's Best Science Fiction. This episode, a husband's love for his lost wife that even the incandescent heat of the sun cannot sever, in Poole Anderson's Vulcan's Forge. I'm Jake, your host. Come with me as we traverse space, time, and imagination in search of each year's best science fiction. This week's story is written by Poole Anderson, who was a prolific and admired author whose career spanned across the golden age of science fiction all the way through cyberpunk and into the postmodern era of the 21st century. Before his death in 2001, he had won numerous awards for his writing, including multiple Hugo and Nebula awards. Not limited to science fiction, he also wrote fantasy, including some Conan the Barbarian. He was actually a founding member of the Society for Creative Anachronism, in which people role-play a sort of fantasy medieval setting, and which my mother would not let me join in high school, saying something like, I'm pretty sure I saw those people in the park, and they seemed totally disconnected from reality. I'm not sure whether the SCA members would object to that description, but nevertheless, to this day, I do not own a single link of chainmail. Anderson's output slowed in the last years of his life, but he remained an active writer until his death, and his estate has published several works of his posthumously. His towering career stands tall among the giants of the genre, and he is missed by many. Now it's time for me to summarize Vulcan's Forge. Uh, Warning, this summary doesn't exactly spoil things, but we are going to get into spoilers in the discussion, the commentary portion of the podcast a little bit later on, so be aware of that. Here we go. Ellen Lindale is a scientist living deep underground on Mercury. As the story opens, she is waiting for Jeremy Ash, famous pilot of a remote scout ship, to arrive. Their goal is to send his ship, the Kitty Wake, to an asteroid heated to incandescence by proximity to the sun. The data they collect there will allow an otherwise impossible insight into the early solar system and the nature of the sun itself. Throughout their interactions, Ash is surly, complaining of being rushed and inadequate safety, and showing an unusual psychological connection to his ship. For instance, rather than send it coded messages by typing, he speaks to it through a radio. Eventually, he lets slip to Lindale that its programming is influenced by the experience it has had with his now-dead wife, Wanda. We grow attached to the ship ourselves as the narrative alternates between the perspective of the ship and the humans monitoring it from Mercury. The ship thinks in first person, knows of Wanda's existence, and as the mission goes awry, the program calls on Wanda to help her. Doomed to wait by the light speed lag between them, Ash can only hope that his wife's mind remains preserved in orbit around Vulcan's forge. For this episode's passage from the text, I'm going to be reading a section describing a dinner party where Ash and Lindale and several other scientists have gathered and are sort of talking and interested to hear Ash's exploits or stories. And I think this section does a good job of illustrating some of the things I like about this story and some of the things that I don't. Ash was rather stiff at first, but a good meal, preceded by drinks accompanied by wine and followed by cognac, mellowed him somewhat. He was actually patient when a young Sven Ewald, fresh in from a long field trip, asked him what the purpose of his task was. 
I mean, yeah, I realize that an asteroid like that has been subjected to intense ir irradiation. But they tell me it has melted. Does that not hopelessly mix things together? Ash nodded at Lindale, who sat beside him. Your department, he said with a slight smile. It made crinkles around his eyes, which told her that once he had often laughed. Hitty and I are merely running your errands for you. Why don't you explain, she suggested. I'm apt to get more technical than is called for. Under the cover of the tablecloth, she fended the hand of Bill Seaton, who sat on her right, off her knee. He was not a bad sort, but he was in love with her and had gotten a trifle drunk. She felt sorry for him, but not enough to give encouragement. The fact that she was among the unmarried at Calaris did not mean that she chose to be among either the celibate or the promiscuous. She confined herself to a pair of close male friends, neither of whom happened to be present. There would be time for real involvements when her work here was done and she returned to the University of Oregon, and then, she hoped, it would be a single involvement for the rest of her life. Her lovers were not the only individuals missing from the officer's mess, out of the hundred-odd on the planet. She had counted twenty attenders, including the six off Regulus. Little Mercury was an entire world, bearing centuries worth of mysteries, and that was not to speak of the sun, ambient space, certain stellar observations best conducted on this site, and lately Vulcan. Leisure was rare and absences were frequent. Yet an effort had been made to brighten the room, a change of pictures on the walls, flowers from the hyperponic section, music lilting out of the speakers. A blank viewscreen was like a curtain drawn against the searing day that had dawned beyond these caves. Well, she heard Ash saying, we think probably some solid material still exists, slag floating on the surfaces, and it will have a radioactive record. However, if convection has kept the liquid reasonably well mixed, that should have tended to protect it from repeated bombardment. Kitty's measurements ought to identify isotopes in the melt that aren't in the slag. Also, magnetic phenomena in a mass like that ought to reveal something about the solar field, its variations, and about the solar wind which carries it outward. As for what else we may find, who can tell? We never know beforehand, do we? Anderson's history with science fiction shows in Vulcan's Forge. Many tropes and subtle details from the days of the 50s and 60s are present in this story. The brusque protagonist and little dialogue, with the characters acting almost melodramatic or exaggerated. The gender politics are certainly outmoded. The story isn't first person, but is told from the perspective of a woman who is only slightly annoyed when a colleague puts his hand on her knee under the table at a public gathering, and who can't wait to get back to the University of Oregon and get married. Her role in the story is to be the emotional support to a closed-off man. She is often patting his hand, helping him calm down, and in the end she facilitates the crime that he commits to protect his wife's spirit from torture. While she is certainly not a cardboard character, at the same time these elements fit into the style of writing from earlier eras, when science fiction stories were about manly men and women who basically worried about what the men thought about them. The story isn't quite that retrograde, but Ellen's character certainly isn't a self-respecting professional who isn't going to take sexual harassment and hostility lying down. Along with that, the storyline is basically my dead wife lives on in the mind of a computer. And this is hardly new. It's definitely gotten treatment on Star Trek multiple times. And um, there is a real emotional resonance to the idea that you hold on to the memories of the people you love and imbue things they possess with their persona in your own mind. But at the same time, there is something messed up about keeping a literal copy or in this story something less than a copy but still a part of their essence in an object that you can program. In fact, 
At the close of the story, Ash's desire isn't to preserve the copy of Wanda's essences that is in the computer core from the ship. Rather, he wants to destroy it quickly and painlessly so that it can't be quote-unquote woken up for study in its disabled and distressed state. When Lindale asks whether copies exist of the program, Ash basically says, oh yeah, I can download her again into the next memory core. I just want to destroy this one so it won't suffer. There's a quality of ownership and an egocentric belief on Ash's part that Wanda's essence, if it is preserved in the Kitty Wake's memory, should be copied and preserved to serve as his connection to her. Rather than the catharsis of finally accepting his wife's death when he puts the memory core to sleep, Ash gets to continue wallowing in his own grief and send his wife in the form of the ship out on yet another dangerous mission where her mind might yet again be destroyed, only so that he can yet again download another copy of her over and over. For me, this gives the story an unsettling quality that I don't think was the intention of the author. Ash is presented as heroic and admirable throughout the story, and Lindale's pre-feminism attitudes aren't dressed up as comical or outmoded, and Anderson doesn't take them so far as to be clear that we're supposed to regard it as a satire of this my wife's brain is trapped in a computer genre. On the other hand, Vulcan's Forge is extremely successful at building the pathos of the reader toward the Kitty Wake's controlling consciousness in that computer core. With only a few short passages, Anderson shows Wanda's consciousness is surely present in the circuitry of the ship, and that when the ship is damaged and spins out of control, and Ash attempts to revive it, I could feel that distress and pain of the ship mind coming through the text. I truly did feel the pain that Ash also was feeling at the distress of that ship mind. Anderson is clearly a skilled writer, so even if some of the tropes haven't aged particularly well, this story still comes off as a successful one in many ways, and I definitely can see how it fits into um, a volume of the year's best science fiction as an example of an extremely well-executed, straightforward science fiction stories that probably were Poole Anderson's bread and butter throughout the bulk of his career in the 20th century. For next time, in the sumo ring of the future, mind truly rules over matter. It is Howard Waldrop's Man Mountain Gentian. Special thanks to Poole Anderson, rest in peace Gardner Dozois, music, writing, and production by me.